This is the Strength Anger Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. Okay, Bane, here we are, episode 18 of the Strength and Anger podcast. The Ocho. And uh, today we are going to go through our favorite assistance exercises for the big three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, probably more opinion than some of our other episodes. I would uh, say from so. From you and I. Yeah. But let's, uh, let's start back with a little loose sense from last week. Um, you know, last week we went over negativity on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, the comments I got were that I sounded like everything was bullshit last week, which... <laughs> And listening back, I did have a lot of things that I thought were bullshit last week. Well, there's a lot of bullshit that goes on in the sport, especially on social media. I was probably a little bit more angry last week, just in general, based on not necessarily what we were talking about, but just in general angry. Yeah. That's, and and that was, might be true today as well. I think today that may be true, which I'm okay with that, because I'll be strong and you can be angry. Don't worry about well. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Bane? Anything from last week? Loose ends? Feedback? Uh, yeah, you know, general feedback, always positive. Actually, I had one specifically that I was going to pull up. Uh, from our friend Mr. Chris Meadows at Deadlift Frankenstein. Uh, really hoping he starts uh, plugging his retirement home soon, but uh, as Jennifer Gimmel did. But basically, yeah, just... Uh, sunrise, I believe, right? Sunrise, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or well, shouldn't Sunrise be called Sunset is what Gimmel said. Ooh, wow. That's uh, not wrong, though. Uh, basically, just confirming, you know, uh, Garrett Fear, absolutely same temp in, uh, in real life as social media, uh, but that he's also very open and receptive to people being critical of his lifts. Um, which I think is good. I think that's one of the nice things about a person like Garrett is that he's very willing to uh, to take criticism, whereas some people will definitely dish it out, but don't you dare say anything back to them. I guess my only comment would be like, what is he looking to accomplish with you know just ripping people to shreds on the internet? I guess maybe in his mind, saying you know ripping Tom Callis's squat from the state meet mm-hmm. last year, then that maybe caused Callis to say, well, fuck it, I'm going to do you know one of your meets. I'll do a USPA meet. Yep. It's- Still did really well. so Very much I, did. I guess maybe that's his goal, but to me, I'm just not sure that ripping people to shreds is is necessarily usually beneficial or provides any productivity. But No, and, and I'm not saying it is or is not. I'm just saying he, he, is, he will give and take. It's not just a, a one-way street with him, and so that I do appreciate. Well, uh, other than that, Bane, what is going on with you? Uh, well, what's going on in the real world right now, I just want to throw this out there. It is Betty White's birthday today. Okay. And just, As of recording this episode, I suppose. Yes, yes. And I just, I'm a big fan of Betty White. So uh, started my new job. I was actually in Austin uh, up until last night and uh, had some fun. I, I contemplated discussing my experience at Austin, specifically from a training perspective on the podcast. I don't think I'm going to do that yet. Uh, I did share some things with you as far as my experience down there. And uh, I'm going to hold off and I'm going to maybe gather my thoughts before I uh, go ahead and share my experience. Well, you could maybe share your experience in general without naming the facility specifically. It was negative. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh, I went once. I had planned on going all week. Uh, I even had my training built around it. And part of it was just proximity. The gym itself was, you know, call it a 40 to 45-minute Uber ride, which cost me 25 bucks uh, to get there from my hotel. So 50 bucks round trip for a subpar training session and environment wasn't really what I was looking for. Sure. 
So uh, again, I, I, I may name them at some point. I'm sure someone will ask, uh, and I may or may not tell uh, who it was. So uh, if you'll notice, I didn't tag any places when I was down in Austin because of that very reason. So uh, food was bomb, though. Uh, I definitely need to re-engage my nutrition plan. I'll put it that way. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I had at least two burritos that were bigger than my two hands put together. And they were breathtaking. That's what she said? Yes. Yes, they were. They were large. Anyway, Stone, what's going on with you, man? Well, I, I can't believe I didn't announce this last week because I think I'd already announced it online, but the WPC Worlds have been set yes. for 2020. Um, this has been something that's been in the works probably, gosh, since October, mm-hmm. um, going back and forth. Uh, we are going to be holding the WPC Worlds October 24th through the 28th mm-hmm. at the Lyle Sheridan Hotel, which is, you know, 20, 30 miles outside of Chicago, depending on what part of Chicago you're measuring in that from. Same place as 2017 AWPC Worlds, correct? And 2018 Equip Nationals, APF yes, Equip Nationals. that's right. So it's a very nice hotel. Fe- featured in West Side vs. the World. It, yeah, I, it is in there. That is the location where... Dave Hoff pushed Louie over behind the projector screen. The Louie launching pad. We should mark that out somewhere. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if we're in the same room. Right. In the, oh, we're going to be in the same room, definitely. It's a really nice location for me. It's a nice hotel. It is. It's a smidgen off the beaten path from, like, there's, there, there isn't things immediately around there, but five minutes away from some places on ID8, uh, five, yeah. ten minutes away from downtown Naperville. Super close, like, to a Very lot close of, to the highway. Yeah, and there's tons of Ubers out there, so you're, you're, you can ha- go in, have fun. After the meet, all that fun stuff. So, WPO will be uh, alongside the WPC Worlds mm-hmm. on that last day, October 28th. The WPO Super Finals will be there. Super. And, uh, you know, we, we looked into going back to Pheasant Run where we held the Can-Am and WPO. Um, and we were close to an agreement there. Unfortunately, if you've watched the news at all, there's some <laughs> financial issues with Pheasant Run. And they were unable to give us a definitive contract which wasn't going to work for yeah. wasn't going to work for us. So there will be no strength expo as part of the world because mm-hmm. it's not a big it's a big enough event, plenty big for a powerlifting meet, but not like Pheasant Run where we can do an entire you know convention center hall and expo. Sure, but sure. the hope, what we're working on right now, is to do something similar in Chicago Strength Weekend earlier in the month of October mm-hmm. here at the new Two XL Powerlifting. Fantastic. So working on Same. a couple of. Uh, other event promoters, and we hope to, you know, have two, three, four events going on the whole weekend. So mm-hmm. instead of multiple events for a day, we'll have multiple events throughout the weekend. I mean, we have 22,000 square feet here at uh, 2XL, so plenty of space for events. Yes, yes. It's, it's and vendors. Kind of what it was, brought, you know, move to four, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Awesome. Awesome. That's exciting stuff, man. So th- none of that is bullshit, Bane, but what is bullshit? Okay. I, I'm going to be pretty spicy about this because I shared with you earlier my experience with this. So I, I travel a decent amount for work, and, and so I've been able to kind of learn some of the ins and outs of you know comfort with travel, especially being a bigger guy. Now I'm not the largest man on the planet. You've made sure to remind me of that every now and then, Eric. And correct, yes, right, accurate. But I do take up more space than the average bear, and so. And, when, you're, and you're broad-shouldered. I, I am. And, you know, my I, you know, pretty big hips. And so when you're sitting in a regular seat, if I'm not sitting in first class, I do take up more room. And so I intentionally always try to sit on the aisle just to be nice to my fellow passengers because I don't want to be a jerk. I mean, to be fair, I don't consider myself a, a very big person. I'm, you know, medium. My wife likes my, as my wife likes to say, extra medium. Yes. I was wearing my extra, extra medium sweatshirt the other day. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't. I don't consider myself a big person, but I feel cramped 
in a middle seat in a plane. Yeah. And so I, uh, even if it makes me have to pay a little bit more, mm-hmm. I usually will pay for an aisle seat. Just And usually an aisle seat on the left side of the plane because okay. my right hip is the one that's a little iffy and it needs a little extra room to stretch out. Okay. Um, and it pissed me off once when I paid extra to have a, a left uh, aisle seat and then somehow we switched planes and I ended up on the right, which pissed me off. That's bogus. Uh, that's bullshit too. So the reason I, I brought this up is because I had an experience uh, on my flight home. So I got bumped to a different plane. I, I found a direct flight uh, back from Austin, which was great because I was going to have to go through Houston. I had like an hour between between flights, which Houston's a big airport. So I was a little nervous about having to you know become the charging rhino going through uh, you know the airport trying to make my flight. So I get on the plane and I'm looking at the – or before I get on the plane, I'm looking at the seat map. And I see I, I've kind of gotten the uh, – the holy grail of seating where I'm in economy class, I'm on the aisle, there's a seat in the middle, and then there's somebody on the, on the window. That for me is the best because then both of us can sit, we're comfortable. If we don't want to engage, we don't have to. It's very, very nice. As we're getting on the plane, I notice that the plane is filling up a lot faster than I assumed it would. I look at the seat map and someone's been upgraded. So I'm like, oh boy, here we go. And What do you mean upgraded? So... Typically, when if you're at the as you're getting closer and closer to the flight, you know when I got bumped to because I have status with United, I got bumped over to uh, the flight at five thirty, the direct. Uh, I automatically go into economy class. At that point, there are it's only standbys, and so standby will always be put towards the back, and then someone from uh, the base economy or or you know towards the back of the plane will get bumped into economy. I understand now. So that's how that works. So. And it's in like group four, so one of the last ones to come on. A gentleman pats my legs, I have my headphones on, and points to the seat. He comes in and flops down, spread leg, puts both elbows on the uh, armrests, actually bumps the girl who is at the window, and she even gives him a dirty look. And we, we end up in this exchange. I won't go through the whole thing, but uh, it's, f- I don't say fiery, but it was, you know, I, I was very point blank with him, like, listen, man. I take up more room than you. It's going to happen. Unless you feel like snuggling, then you're going to need to figure out a way to, to sit differently. So we, we ended up kind of working it out, but he was, uh, he was less than polite. And so, yeah, middle seats in planes are bullshit. I think the best option is when you have a child that's young that yes. can sit in the middle seat. Yes. And that is why I do love child with my family because we take up two full rows by ourselves. Right. So Nick, so Nick and I automatically get the aisle or the window if one of us so desires. Right. So... Stone, what is bullshit? This is a great one, by the way. Uh, yeah, and, and we can thank our pal, Paul Rupright, for providing this bullshit, because he posted this last night, and I almost, in bed, went into a diatribe on Facebook, uh, but I figured, eh, let's just go to sleep instead of going to bed angry. <laughs> um, it's Mark Ripto's article from not terribly long ago called How to Fix Powerlifting. Mm. Um, Bless you. Oh, so- Sorry about that. Um, we honestly could do an entire episode on this, and maybe we will. But here's some of the highlights. And first of all, does powerlifting need to be fixed? I, what's I guess what is wrong with it is if it does. Yeah, I, I mean, and this isn't an old article. This is a recent one from last year. I would say powerlifting is more popular than it has ever been. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you give me a magic wand, would I change some things? Sure. Or the, I mean, I would maybe not have as many federations. I maybe would not have as many di- divisions. There's a few things I would change, but. I'm generally a, a free marketeer, so mm-hmm. I believe that the market will dictate what people want. Um, here's the litany of things that he doesn't like. First of all, monoliths. You know, Dumb. 
Uh, he thinks that all squats are high and the need to enforce a bigger depth rule. He, he, the only one he thinks that judges depth decently, decently, quote unquote, is the USAPL. Wrong. <laughs> he wants to get rid of the pause on the bench because it's arbitrary. There isn't a pause. Right. Uh, he said he had a lifter to meet that at a three-second pause. Well, then keep the bar stationary, dumbass, and you won't have to pause it. Uh, he wants to get actually get rid of all commands on the bench. No, no press, no rack. Just don't heave it in your chest and then throw it back in the rack. Uh, again, I say wrong. Get rid, of course. Get rid of sumo deadlifts. Stupid. Uh, <laughs> um, he doesn't want really any spotters. He said Bill Starr told him that you know there should be no spotters, and he said there should only be two or three spotters on the squat. Bit, wait, and it, it'll, 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 it'll Bill Star. He he is a famous lifter. There's the, you know, there's a Bill Star method. He's an old time lifter. Okay. Um, I mean, sure, good lifter doesn't mean his opinion is anything good. Uh, but said it would quote keep it honest if there was no spotters. Interesting, because Patrick Star told me we should have eight spotters per side. So there you go. <laughs> of course, he thinks we should get rid of all equipment, you know, suits and shirts and that kind of thing. Can we just lift naked? Because I'd be down for that. I would. Totally and down. and get rid of the way in and do a way out. So that I could almost be okay with because I do know like that's. I've whined about that a little bit sometimes. Okay, from a legit, and there's actually an organization, not powerlifting, there's an organization, and I think it's associated with, at least ish with Ripito, is strength lifting. I think maybe he's divested his interest from it, but there's an organization called the U.S. Strength Lifting Federation, and they do squat overhead press and deadlift, and they have a lot of these rules that Rip loves, and Mm. one of them is a way out. And actually, I was kind of toying around with the idea of doing something similar mm-hmm. to that. I don't know if I'd sanction it through them, but I like the idea of a raw squat overhead press and deadlift just as something different. Yeah. Not that's, power that's like the, the starting strength basically is what it is, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Precisely. Gotcha. And they, but they do a way out from a logistical standpoint. It makes no sense. And even from a competition standpoint, how do I know if whom I'm competing against if I don't know what weight class they're in? Yeah. I don't, that, that, that becomes a pain. I could see where that is a, a I, challenge from I, a, from a, the the bending of the rules, right? And that's it, and it's, it, right. I mean, weigh-ins are part of every sport. Yeah, where there is weight classes, weight classes, and that's people are always going to do things to skirt into weight classes. Yeah, you can make an argument that twenty-four hour weight weigh-ins, you know, change the game, but everyone's got access to the same rules. Yeah, now should we compete comparing, you know, twenty-four hour weigh-ins versus two-hour weigh-ins? I mean, I get it. I, I, I get all those arguments. Mm-hmm. But I like 24-hour weigh-ins because it just makes things easier as a meat director. It makes things easier as a lifter. Um, It gets one thing checked off your list. So those are the things that Mark Ripito thinks we need to fix powerlifting. And that entire article is bullshit. Yeah. Sorry, Mark Ripito. No. Yeah. Go go back to doing your head-forward squats um, (laughs) with your hip drive, hip drive, and your your good morning squats. Um, We might... Go back and go point by point through everything he has in there in a future episode, because man, there'd be a lot of anger. I, I yeah, I and I think we, we we might just want to just to get a little little spiciness, but uh, let's uh, let's move on to some powerlifting USA throwback. Yeah, the throwback I found a really old one. Um, or I should say really old, you know, in context of the ones I have in there. But this is from March two thousand one. Wow, that is. So, what were my- you doing in March two thousand one, Bane? March 2001, I would have been in the middle of track season, 
at Mount Mercy University, Mount Mercy College at that time, had not met Nicole. So this is a, this is a while ago. And I was doing a lot of stuff I ought not to. Well, let's put it that way. Okay. I would have been a senior in high school Jeepers. in 2001. Jeepers. I graduated um, in 2001. Yeah. Uh, I just remember that the class prior to me was the 2000 class, and they were very proud of that. So this is fun, actually. We had this argument with the class of 99, the class of 2000, the class of 2001 at my high school. What was the last class of the millennia and the first class of the new millennia? I think the last class would have been 99 and the first class would be 2000. But was there a year zero? So how can you determine which one is where the millennia starts? There was, I, I, I agree with you. It was 99 is the last one and 2000 is the first one. Right. This was like a multi-year argument that these classes got into. And I'm like, I cannot understand the level of stupid that I'm hearing right now. Plus, nobody cares. No, we really don't. Class 2G, baby. We're the best. <laughs> <laughs> On the cover is the entire Mally family. And uh, on the center is Justin. On the left is Jennifer. And and uh, let's see. Justin's squatting, Jennifer's deadlifting, and Larry, mm-hmm. Mally, who is the current president of the USAPL, mm-hmm. uh, is benching. And this episode is revolving around the top 20 women teen masters. And again, we've talked about the top 100 list. Mm-hmm. Once a year, Powerlifting USA did a top 20 list for these you know, specific categories, and they did all the weight classes for, for teen, for masters, sure. uh, and for women. Um, so let it, me, was, it was the open monthly, and then yearly it was the different uh, correct unique ones. Okay, gotcha. Just a couple interesting ones I saw in there. Um, my coach, Maris Sternberg. Let's see if I can find her again. I should have marked it. She was in here. Uh, there, I mean, the, this is a list that's incredible. Our mm-hmm. lists are incredible because we go through every weight class. Uh, but Maris Sternberg, as a master's, was in here. Oh, there's actually a little uh, a little write-up on her on the side. Oh, look uh, at that. And we had, uh, you know, in the teenage, eh, let's see if there's anything of note there. I checked to see if I was in there. I don't think I did any meets in 2001. I did meets in 2000 and then took a year off due to a back tweak and finishing football. Um, but interesting to look through. Maybe I'll try to post these lists. Um, yeah, but the, the Maley family was uh, was all over this episode or this uh, this uh, magazine. This edition, this edition, right? Um, our uh, fellow, I don't know, coach, two uh, XL attendee Tom Carnegie was in this episode nice. in the ANNPC Nationals, which was an offshoot. We talked last week about. Uh, uh, Sunlight Power mm-hmm. and Daryl Latch. This was one of the organizations that he bought, the ANNPC. Speaking of the alphabet soup of powerlifting. Right. And uh, Sunlight Power had a couple of different federation meet results in this ep- or in this uh, edition of nice. Powerlifting USA. Tom Carnegie's looking very uh, thick in his canvas squat suit. Thick. Um, big Iron Jim. Um, you know, of West Side versus the World fame with Rick Hussey. There was a write-up on them in uh, in this edition. Um, Kieran Kidder had a WPO News article where he basically laid out the differences. And this one I might take a picture and post. Yeah. He laid out the differences between the rules of the WPO and the WPC. Um, okay. There was things like a 48-hour weigh-in for the WPO. Jesus. Um, he did limit the equipment a little bit more. I think he... 
said it was technically two ply max as opposed to, you know, technically the APF WPC is unlimited. I mean, there's a point of diminishing returns. Right. But, we've talked about that. Uh, I mean, 12 ply is not really going to help you. You're yeah. not going to be able to do anything, but that's just interesting. You know, going back and now the WPO is back. It was kind of in its infancy in the 2000, 2001 era. Right. Um, a couple articles. One, Hooking Up the Bands by Dr. Larry Miller. Ironically, it was not by Louie. Interesting. Um, there was a West Side Deadlift training article by Louis himself. Gotcha. And, of course, every back of Powerlifting USA in this era has the same advertisement for the oh Enzer Power Shoe, which is funny because they, like, they had this, art, this advertisement on the back of Powerlifting USA forever. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I, I, mean, I don't remember the last time they sold this. And it's actually a, a cool-looking shoe. It's a flat one. They sell a heeled one now. And because this advertisement was out so much, people were always looking for this shoe, mm-hmm. um, but they stopped making it for whatever reason. Oh, he got the Velcros. I don't know why they stopped making it and only made the heeled one. Because, I mean, I like a heeled shoe, but I know a lot of people don't like a heeled shoe. Um, and this was, you know, a solid squat shoe with yeah. a flat, solid sole. Gotcha. Interesting. I, I, I really enjoy doing these PLUSA uh, archives because it just... it. I remember seeing this on the newsstand before I got into the sport, but I was still, you know, fascinated by strength. And I'm like, oh, I, I wonder if that's something I should look at at some point. And now it's just cool to kind of go back and uh, and see these things that I, I remember seeing on the newsstand back uh, many, many moons ago. Yeah, we've got a number from Bill Busby to go through. Oh, yeah. And hopefully we'll get even more when we get uh, some of the stuff from Ernie Franz's house that we're going to hopefully make into a little, you know, museum of Franz memorabilia. Awesome. So excited for that. So, uh, topic of the day, Bane, mm-hmm. assistance exercises. Yeah. So, before we go into our kind of like top three, top five choices for everything, mm-hmm. I thought we'd maybe go into, you know, kind of how you pick your weak point exercises and mm-hmm. what, what things you want to think about. Um, for me, the number one thing you want to think about is working your weak points. Mm-hmm. Chain, chain is only as, as strong as the weakest link, and so you've got to find that, pinpoint that, and really start to dig in on it and how do you quote unquote fix it. And one of my kind of key aspects of my programming that I do for our members here and my online clients um, and even my personal training clients is I want to work their weak points. And it's hard when I have an online client because I'll often ask them like, you know, where's your weak point? And a lot of times they just don't know Mm -hmm. or they don't have enough awareness. And I'll ask like, okay, where do you fail on your lift? Do you fail at the bottom? Do you fail at the top? Mm -hmm. Do you have poor form? Do you have weak lats? And again, the self-evaluation is hard. But when I'm choosing, especially assistance exercises or a variation of the big three, Mm -hmm. that's the big thing I look at is, you know, what is this individual's weak point? And, And we'll talk about specific exercises, but... For instance, if you're weak at the bottom on a squat, mm-hmm. you know, clearly a box squat or a pause squat makes sense to work that weak point and make it stronger. Sure. Um, what about keeping the body in balance? You know, that's a big thing for me with, you know, assistance exercises. Um, you want to try to... Perfectly balance as all things should be. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you can't perfectly balance. I mean, bench pressing is one of the exercises in powerlifting. So you're always probably going to be stronger in pressing than pulling. Mm-hmm. But in order to keep your shoulders from being too damn achy, like my right one is right now, mm-hmm. you've got to try to balance pressing and pulling, and you've got to try to balance internal, external rotation of the shoulder. Because when we bench, we internally rotate the shoulder. Most of us spend most of our life slightly internally rotated, looking at a computer, looking mm-hmm. at a phone, driving, 
And so working those small little external rotators of the rotator cuff Mm -hmm. is important. Science. (laughs) (laughs) You got to think about, you know, the anterior or front and posterior of the body. Um, the, The typical bro lifter, and we had a new member in here, I think we talked about the other day that I saw wrapping his knees when he was doing leg press. Oh, my God. I don't have anything against leg press. I don't think it's a super beneficial exercise for hypertrophy. It's okay. I think it's decent for like rehab, like, you know, your work capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Or you you see some blood flow like that. It's good for that. Like it's, it's safe. You can put a decent amount of weight on there and you can just get the blood working through, through the legs. I I do appreciate that portion of it. Sure. Um, You know, if you read any of those old powerlifting USA, Louis Simmons articles, he would talk about how the posterior chain is far more important. And posterior chain is hamstrings, glutes, low back. Mm -hmm. I think Almost all coaches would agree, or almost all trainees of powerlifting would agree, that probably the posterior chain, the posterior of your body in powerlifting is more important than the anterior. But at the same token... Superior posterior. (laughs) At the same token, you don't want to totally neglect your quads, and you don't want to neglect your pecs, and you don't want to neglect your anterior shoulders. I guess usually why you know strength coaches, Louie, and others would focus on the posterior chain is because most trainees have probably spent if they just walk into a weight room they focused on the anterior they focused on bench press and leg press yep and leg extensions and bicep curls right you know uh, i guess it depends on how you look at the body whether your bicep is a anterior posterior by you know your technical uh and uh, what's the word i'm thinking of uh anatomical position technically mm-hmm. a bicep is an anterior muscle but you know those are the things that people do when they walk in the weight room curls bench press and leg press that's fair so that's why louis and others would say you know you need to focus on those muscles you can't see mm-hmm. um i know our buddy donnie thompson loves the term quote core mm-hmm. but i do think there is you know some importance to keeping the body in balance as you said bane you're only as strong as your weak point. Mm-hmm. So you don't want your core or trunk to be the weak point in which, you know, you can't transfer the force from your legs to the bar, say, when you're squatting. No, I, I agree. And I know, you know Louis talks about this, that, you know, what's the strongest part of a tree? It's the trunk, right? And so, you, you know, you do want to work that. A good analogy for this uh, that Eric Rozier gave me many years ago, and, and this I think is probably the best one that, for me, as I was always thinking about the squat, was so as he's explaining it to me and helped me understand. You know, when you have a rock and you sit on top of a rock, what happens? It sits there, right? If you have a rock and you put it on top of a marshmallow, what happens? It goes squish, right? Don't be the marshmallow. Sure. And that, as he explained to me, what inner abdominal pressure, what creating a strong base, because generally speaking, your legs can handle most of the work that you're trying to do when you're squatting. Uh, and again, we were focused on the squat for this specifically, it's like, but that, that trunk, that upper portion of your body is where most people fail on, on the squat. Yeah. Fred Hatfield had a saying, you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe. <laughs> you, true. you know, you need a, you need a foundation. Yep. So if your trunk in the middle of your body is not strong enough to handle the weight that you're trying to put on your back to squat or, yep. you know, handling the positioning needed to maintain for a deadlift. Yes. Uh, it's probably the least applicable on bench, um, but definitely squat and deadlift. It's going to be very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's the thought of, and Louis talks about GPP, general physical preparedness. He loves acronyms. You know, others might say like just jank staying in general physical conditioning. Yeah. You know, so 
Not in shape because we always excuse that round is a shape. Right, round is a shape. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I usually talk about just being in general physical conditioning. Mm-hmm. You know, work capacity is another popular term for that. Huge. Like, should you be able to go through the workout without being just, I mean, generally exhausted? Yeah, you sh- you you usually should be. There are going to be points where you're going to get done with the workout and just be like, dude, screw this. Like, I I just I left it all out there today. It should not necessarily be every single one. Right, and. If you're not able to even get through what your working sets are, yeah. uh, because you're just not because you don't have the strength to go through it, but because you you fatigue so easily, mm-hmm. you know, I do think some of those things that Louis talks about, sled drags and extra workouts, are probably, you know, maybe not necessary but helpful. Right. Um, I usually tell people start with walking three times a week for a mile um, on a treadmill or outside if you can do it for a continuous pace also good for your back, Mm -hmm. but just general physical conditioning, adding in some conditioning, some light cardio, those are going to be good, you know, from an assistance standpoint. Right. You know, there's the thought process, Bane, of how should assistance exercises be handled in the, quote, in-season or when you're getting close to a meet and in the, quote, off-season when you're far away from a meet? It's good. It's a good, important question, you know. Uh, I feel that they're still necessary on both sides, but I would say it's probably going to gear more towards – Assistance versus the big three in the off season versus you know as you're going in into meat, meat prep uh, that is going to taper off uh, with the amount of assistance exercise you're doing. Yeah, at a certain point, if you're handling maximum loads on the big three, getting close to a meet, mm-hmm. you know, just from a fatigue standpoint, you're probably going to cut out some assistance exercises. Right. Specialty bars, um, not necessary, but how can you incorporate specialty bars into your training? You know, there's an, almost an infinite amount of specialty bars out there. Um, some of my favorites are the safety squat bar, um, the football bar for pressing, the spider bar, the cambered bar. Um, I like having those variations, if for no other reason but for novelty. Um, they do work the body in a, a, a different way. For instance, a cambered bar is going to work your, your trunk or your core a little bit more. Um, both the cambered bar and the safety squat bar and the spider bar when you're squatting them or doing a good morning you're going to take some stress off the shoulders Mm -hmm. and if you're doing you know say two squat variations per week um, putting a straight bar on your back constantly can be challenging for your shoulders in the long term oh it can (laughs) buffalo bar is another one buffalo or chris duffin's version of the duffalo bar yes or what's the is the el matador bar is the new one that donnie's talking about Yes, I don't know if I've seen it, but I've, I've heard him talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it's like a, basically it's like a semicircle, is what it is. It's, oh, okay. Uh, it's I have much kinda... more much more curved than the the Duffalo Buffalo bar. We need that meme of from Futurama where he's holding his money. Take my money. <laughs> Take my money. Yes, yes, hundred percent. I think a big arguing point between your we talked about in our programming episode are high frequency, you know, high, high volume lifters that do squat, bench, deadlift three to four times a week. Yeah. is can and should assistance exercises replace the big three at times? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something, as an early lifter, I really fought against and was against. I thought you, you need to have a, a regular bar on your back, in your hands, you know, from the ground weekly in order to train your movement patterns. And I do, the next thing we're going to talk about is, you know, new lifters versus seasoned lifters. Right. But I think if you have the movement patterns dialed down on the big three, I'm not sure that you always need to have a straight bar on your back doing squats. It's probably okay to do, you know, 
non-regular competition squats sometimes in mm-hmm. the off-season especially. Right, right. Because you're, you're also going to be working around injuries. You'll be working around, you know, the the rehab of, you know, a, a quote-unquote meat season, right? So, so yeah, I, I would agree that there's going to be some adjustments, some dialing in during the off-season. Right. Again, I, I would have never done it in the past, but now I do think there's value in doing things like, you know, safety squat bar squats for a cycle as opposed to regular squats. Right. Maybe just replacing it for a while yeah. and not just having it as an assistance exercise. Right. But this this gets my last point on how to pick assistance exercises. The difference between beginners and, quote, seasoned lifters right. or experienced lifters, you know, someone with at least, you know, we'll say five years of training and competing under their belt mm-hmm. um, or more. Uh, beginning lifters, in my opinion, should probably focus on doing the big three or close variations that teach the way I want them to do the big three or the way they should do the big three yeah. as their foundation. Just getting that 10,000 hours of mastery or two mastery, basically. Right. I think sometimes with new lifters, I have at times gotten a little too cute with them. And it's like, you know, I can't give them the same program I give myself or I give Jennifer Gimmel or my wife, Jackie, who have right. all been lifting for 10 plus years. Right. You know, they need probably just more of the basics. And I've done a little bit more of the five, three, one variations because they just need, you know, time and reps under their belt doing squat bench deadlift. Right. So those are some of the things uh, from a consideration standpoint that I look at when I'm programming assistance exercises, when I'm doing assistance exercises. Um, and I thought what we do now, Bane, is just kind of go through the big three and each of us can kind of go through our favorites mm-hmm. and, you know, get some comments thereof. So we'll just bounce back and forth. We'll start with squats. You know, what are the ones that you feel are the most beneficial? Uh, so for me, what I what has helped me a ton is uh, it is still a version of the big three or, or you know, the squat is the banded squat. Uh, this could be with specialty bars or with just a regular straight bar. Uh, as I have been kind of focusing lately on building acceleration, uh, you know, out of the hole, I do feel banded speed. squat. Speed! Speed! I am speed. Uh, really feel like the banded squat has been a big help for that. Uh, as much as I despise it, the reverse hyper, I hate that stupid thing, but it does help. helps in building the posterior chain and... And obviously, you know, many, many other lifters subscribe to this as well. But I, I have seen a, uh, a lot of strength gains through using the reverse hyper. And then for me, as I work on this, you know, intra-abdominal strength and, you know, building or, you know, creating that pressure to create stability, yoke walks have been another thing that I've inc- incorporated. On top of that, it also helps with just that general physical conditioning. Uh, you know, those help a ton. So I'm not a big fan of just straight running or anything like that. You know, I'm kind of a little too big for doing a lot of that stuff. So doing strongman exercises tends to help me with a lot of that. Yeah, I think most power lifters, um, running is probably not their best choice for running. Just from a, a a joint pounding standpoint, you're already taking a pounding when you're lifting. If you put you know running on top of that, we had a guy here that was training for a police test, mm-hmm. and I had to advise him to go start running in the forest preserve. This is where we got the infamous story here about backing into a forest preserve spot. Um, which if you don't know what that indicates, maybe just Google it. Um, but because the forest preserve, you know, has kind of that gravelly softer surface to run on, it's going to be less pounding on your joints. I'm sure he wasn't running particularly well either. Right. Being a, a, a meathead power lifter. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't run very good. You know, the banded squats. And I think what you're talking about, Bane is, is banded squats from the bottom. Correct. 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 So, Not reverse bands, banded from the bottom. Right. You know, it, if somebody doesn't have a reverse hyper bane, 
suggestions on what they could use to simulate that or sure. replacement? Sure. So I've done a couple different things with that. I've done a where I've laid on my on my stomach on a bench and I've just had like a dumbbell between my legs. I use it that way. Uh, you know, some folks I know will use like a, if if it's available, uh, glute ham raise. Will use like a back, you know hyper extensions. Um, I've tried to do on a hyper extension apparatus. The I've just inverted it and tried to use my legs on it. That didn't work out so hot. It looked really funny, but I've done it for body weight over a, a larger stability ball. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're not going to be able to use much or any weight. Maybe ankle weights or a dumbbell, like you said. Yeah, but you can crazy. You can kind of do it over a, a larger stability ball. Yeah. So it, it's and then I've I've done it on a desk too, or like the desk is you know about hip height, and I'm able to do that way. So literally on like your office desk. Yes. So in your office, you were doing reverse hypers. I, I have done it before. Yes, <laughs> that's hilarious. It, it was. I, I was. I was in the office. I was by myself, and I just, like, I, I just said, "Fuck it." <laughs> it's like my back's hurting. I need to do something right now. That's hilarious. I can just. Oh well, you know, Louis says we got to do twenty workouts a week, so I just started doing reverse hypers in my in my office. So, so to that end, though, while I don't necessarily consider it a full workout, I do have um, bands that I use for uh, pull aparts that I will usually do like one set of 50 like every single day. And and I just, I, I like doing them. It kind of helps with my shoulders a little bit. Uh, I also have the grippers. My grippers are more for like when someone's driving me crazy. I would rather squeeze that than squeeze their throat. Uh, it's just usually a good idea. Fair. And then I've also got the finger extenders. I just try to work both sides of, uh, of the hand. Also find those to be very good because I'm, I'm very fidgety. And so if I have those in my hand when I'm, you know, focusing on something or, uh, you know, kind of coming up with ideas, those tend to help me really focus when I have uh, the finger extenders on. So uh, really, really like the, that actually. Yeah, I do actually do things like literally every single day. So if you want to count that as a workout, then yes, I do have you know 15 other workouts a, day, a week. Sure. I mean, when Louis talks about multiple workouts per week, some of those are just like 20 minutes of sled dragging. Right. And or, you know, some reverse hypers yeah. every day. Okay, so I'll go into some of my... Uh, favorite span. Yeah, what do you like? Probably my number one for squats is pause squats. Oof. Um, the reason I like that is because most people struggle with the squat is staying tight. And by pausing at the bottom, mm-hmm. um, I've done some midway pauses as well with people, but typically it's going to be a one or two second pause squat at the bottom, mm-hmm. is that teaches that bracing and staying tight. Because if you have to literally pause there with that weight on your back, you, you've got no other choice other than to stay tight or you're going to collapse. Right. Especially for raw lifters. I mean, I, I think it helps with equipped lifters as well, um, you know, to work that bottom end. So, you know, you don't have a weak point at any point of the kinetic chain, but definitely for raw lifters that don't have that extra support that us cheater gear lifters have. Right. Um, especially for gear lifters. One of my favorites when we get close to a meet is just heavy standups. I, yeah. I think the squat, and, and I use this in the bench as well, um, but especially in the squat, I think that kinesthetically, you know, feeling that heavy weight on your back and being shocked can throw off a lift. My mm-hmm. wife, Jackie, is often one that will say, you know, from the table, she can often tell if somebody's going to get her squat or not simply by the way they pick up the weight. That's, that's legit. And it's not, no, they may not get it on depth, but I think she's talking about, like, will they stand up with the weight um, successfully without, you know, failing? And if you watch people, and now there's been occasional lifters that'll stand up and they'll lift super, super shaky, and especially equipped lifters, all of a sudden they'll get into that, 
groove of the suit, mm-hmm. and they'll look super solid. But nine times out of ten, if somebody stands up with something fairly poorly, the chances of them getting that squat decrease a lot. I agree. It's especially something Billy constantly is in people's ears. You know, we're getting set up. Is it's it's all about the setup. It's all about the setup. Yeah, if you set up forward, and you know, if you're in a monolift and you set up by standing up with it like a good morning, for instance, as opposed to standing up with it with your hips under like a mini squat, mm-hmm. that will often throw off your squat right from the start. People will be forward, the weight will get out in front of them, and that'll be turned into a good morning lift. That's no fun. Um, similarly, I like reverse band squats. Mm-hmm. Again, not overdone, not with you know triple heavy bands. You know, we joke here about how. Lifters will attach heavy bands from the top, and it, quote, only takes off 50 pounds. Wrong. But yet when they hook them up from the bottom, it's like, you know. It's adding 130. It, it, it's, no, more like adds like 300 pounds at the top. <laughs> so for most of the people here at their level, we're using reverse monster minis. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, reverse lights, and that is not very heavy band touch. And this is hooked from a monolift. If you're hooking it from a power rack, it's going to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're usually looking for 50 to 75 pounds, you know, of deload of that weight at the bottom. I like the reverse band squats in addition to the stand-ups because reverse band, you are taking that weight through the full range of motion. Right. And you're not just standing with it. The only caveat is that if you overuse the reverse band squat because, and I would say this on banded squats like you talked about, mm-hmm. you can overuse bands because they will provide a stability front to back and they will provide a pathway mm-hmm. for the weight. And if you don't do any, you know, free squats without them or maybe squats with, uh, you know, chains as you're accommodating resistance, mm-hmm. I do think you can get caught into that, you know, stability front to back lacking if all you're doing is banded squats. And then you'll misgroove the lift. You won't get it. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, one, of my, one of my favorite exercises for beginners is box squats, Mm -hmm. you know, and if people have trouble, A, achieving depth, B, sitting back and properly squatting, um, we will start them with a maybe slightly above parallel box Mm -hmm. and then slowly through time, through the course of, okay, maybe we'll spend, you know, four or five weeks at a above parallel box. Then we'll spend four or five weeks at a parallel box. Now, and my only caveat is, again, I don't think you really want to go to a super, super low box because then right. you will have some of that lumbar flexion aka quote butt wink which right. i would say is non-optimal but a slightly below parallel box eventually mm-hmm. uh, my wife jackie has had some knee issues and Just slowly get it deeper <laughs> uh, as we're as we're <laughs> as we're rehabbing her we started with you know like an 18 inch box which for her was pretty well above parallel but we spent 5 weeks there right. and then said okay now we're going to take it down to a 16 inch box which is just slightly above parallel and then we'll probably spend 5 weeks there and then go down to maybe you know a 15 inch box which would be more at parallel so right. i like box squats for beginners especially and i mean for seasoned lifters a box squat i do agree with louis it does take some stress off the hips mm-hmm. from personal experience so if you're a, an old-time lifter like me with 20 years of squats on your hips, um, especially if I'm doing a second variation of squats in the week, it almost has to be box squats or my hips are not going to be able to handle it. Right. Um, and, and not a specific exercise, but I just put, you know, lots of, lots of core and trunk work is important mm-hmm. for the squat. And then, you know, taking care of your joints, I think, is important in the squats. You know, doing little tiny exercises for your hips, your knees, and your ankles, things like 
clamshells for your hips and mm-hmm. things like TKEs for your knees and doing some kind of calf raises, mm-hmm. you know, to keep some strength and stability in the ankle and the calves, um, I think are valuable. Agreed. That's how you get huge calves. <laughs> right. Success is superior genetics. Uh, let's move on to the bench, Payne. <sighs> what, what are your choices for the bench? First of all, bench is dumb. Anyway. Uh, deadlift is dumb, sir. If, we're, of course, <laughs> if any of the three lifts is dumb, it's deadlifts. Nah, bench is stupid, but uh, I also say that because I really suck at it. <clears throat> so the the ones that I really kind of in, one enjoy, but also I've seen a lot of uh, help with my bench has been uh, the tape press. For those who aren't aware of that, it's, uh, I believe his name is Dave Tape. It is. Uh, so basically it is a dumbbell press where you start with the uh, ends of the dumbbells on your chest. Uh, and then you basically press those up so it does focus a lot on the triceps. Uh, it's an elbows-out tricep extension is the best way I could explain it. That's a great way to explain Similar it. to a skull crusher tricep extension, but instead of your elbows going in front, they're going out, out to, to the, the sides. Side. So kind of a chicken wing type style. So uh, if you want to look that up online, you can see tons of different uh, videos. Google it. Yes, use the Google machine. And, but I, I love tape presses. I love heavy tape presses. I feel those really help, especially with the lockout. Uh, and my lockout has been pretty suspect for, for a while, so uh, helps out pretty well. And and the reason Dave Tate invented those is they are easier on the elbows. Yes. So you can use a little bit heavier weight, mm-hmm. and they will work the triceps you know, a little bit more directly and put less stress in the elbows than, say, your traditional tricep extensions, your traditional skull crushers. Right. Um, you know, even uh, another West Side one is the rolling tricep extension, which does take a little bit of stress off the elbow. Mm-hmm. But I think the tape press is probably of all those is the most elbow friendly exercise. I, I would agree just from from my experience. Uh, wide grip rows, and I, and I forgot to put this in with a pause. So I try to put a my pause where a pause at the at the chest, basically where where okay. I, uh, bring it to. So what I like to do, and I learned this from uh, from Steve Brock, is place my hands essentially where they would be on a bench. Uh, on a bench press bar and then pull all the way to where the bar would be on my chest when it's going to, when I'm going to get a press command and then do a one second pause or a one count pause and then return to the start of the movement. And this is what type of row? It's a seated row. Seated row. Okay. So, so your it, traditional cable correct. machine seated row. Correct. You could probably do this also with like a, a seal row. Obviously you're not going to get as much extension on that. Uh, yeah, you'd need a camber. And if you don't know what a seal row is, it's basically when you're horizontal facing the ground. So you would need you need a camber unless, bar upside down. Right. Unless you're, you know, like a midget, you probably need uh, little people they prefer. Yeah, excuse so, yeah, me. Like, be careful there, man. We just, excuse me, little people. I apologize to a host of communities. <laughs> well, it, let's let's be fair. <laughs> I'm like, you know, a couple inches away from being a little person. So that's, that's fair. I'm not one to talk, but if my, you're, my, my mom is a little person, actually. If you're, if you're not a little person, so is my mom, technically. Yeah. Uh, you would need something under a utility bench, your, your traditional bench. You'd need to build it up with boxes so that you have enough range of motion. So laying flat on the bench, you could extend your elbows all the way. Right. And to bring it all the way to chest, you're going to need a cambered bar. Yes. I have people do it sometimes with dumbbells, seal rows. Sometimes, yeah. So that you can get that. that range of motion. Yeah. So, yeah, that pause there, it does force you to... Uh, to stay tight, and uh, I, do, I do feel there's a lot of, a lot of benefit there. Uh, plate rows, I actually stole these from uh, at Fattest Illinois Lifter, Barzine Vaziri. Uh, so basically gripping a plate, sometimes you could do like plate pinches while you do this. I know he does these with 100-pound plates and because the, the, the man is barely human. Right, he looks like a Yeti. He's he, gigantic. He does, and, and, I, and I love him. He's a wonderful human. Uh, basically you're slightly bent over, uh, and you basically bring the elbow out uh, fairly far. It's not, not really close in. 
uh, and so you're rowing out with the uh, with the plate while while pitching it. So uh, a lot of benefits here. Obviously, you're working the back, you're doing a row, uh, then also working the grip. Uh, you know, I think I, I know he stole it from somebody. I don't know where he did, but I hear Barzine talk about this quite a bit because if you can't handle the weight, you can't handle the weight. Sure. And so working on grip strength and working on you know the hands ability to hold those big weights. And one I don't have on my list, Bane, but similar to your your wide grip rows is one thing I've hooked up here and I stole from Chris Duffin. And I, I would if I knew an engineer and how to do it, I would create a machine for it. But we mm-hmm. call them reverse bench rows, where you know you're laying flat out of bench and yes. there's a cable machine above you, and you pull either we use a football bar attachment or you could use a straight bar and you pull it in the reverse motion of the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll have new lifters do that because it does help teach them that grooving that movement pattern of the bench in reverse and getting their lats tight. Right. If I could figure it out, I would love to make a machine because the problem is at a certain point, you know, you know, Bane, you would put so much weight on there, it's going to throw you up. You need something to hold you down on the bench. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know how that's uh, how that would work. So, um, Any yeah. engineers out there, you know, at 2XL Powerlifting, we could figure it out and right. uh, maybe we could uh, propose that to Elite FTS and have a prototype sent here to 2XL. Yeah, there you go. Let's uh, make benching great again. <clears throat> Last one is, uh, is pull-aparts. I like these for a lot of reasons. One, it just it works uh, a lot of the back. Uh, I, I feel it's a great exercise because it's very versatile. I can literally do this in a hotel room in my office. Uh, so I like the the versatility of this particular movement uh, by being able to do it kind of anywhere. So it's one of the big reasons I put pull-aparts on here. Yeah, Joe DeFranco, who's a strength coach, he was very big on Elite FTS back in the day. He's got kind of a consulting business now. He doesn't run a gym anymore. Mm-hmm. He consulted with the WWE on their performance center, weight yeah. room, and training protocol. Yep. He recommends doing 100 band pull-aparts a day there you go. in general. Um, I like band pull-aparts as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only caution is that sometimes people are so trap dominant sure. is that they will just squeeze their traps instead of squeeze what we want them to do is their shoulder blades together working their rhomboids and the rear delts. So, so cuz I'm fairly trap dominated. I've got, you know, decent sized traps. So the way I kind of get around that is I make sure that when I'm pulling apart, I'm doing it at the spot or as close to the spot as I can where the bar would touch my chest. So that does force me to get lower and while my traps are still engaged, not as much as uh, I, I kind of want to do. Sure, I'll also do them with an underhand grip which mm-hmm. tends to limit the amount of scapular elevation or you know raising up of your shoulders and your traps Mm -hmm. i do have some people that are just so kinesthetically unaware they i have to go to something even more basic to get their shoulder blades together like a you know a prone it v something that you know they're just laying on their stomach and learn to squeeze their shoulder blades together right and i think ben and i both agree the band pull apart and those different kind of scapular retraction exercises are important because in the bench especially at the setup we want a hard upper back tightness by squeezing the shoulder blades down and together. Don't be the marshmallow. Right. It's kind of like your core in the squat is what I usually tell people. Your upper back and the bench is like your core in the squat. Yep. And if you don't have that foundation of your lats and your upper back, you know, yeah, it's like you're pressing off a marshmallow. I like that analogy. And and for new people that have never benched in a powerlifting style, that is the most challenging thing to teach people is to get their shoulder blades down and together. Um, actually I found special needs kids pick this up who've never probably benched before. Mm-hmm. They pick up benching technique better than gym bros because they don't have thousands of hours of poor movement patterns. Yep. Yep. And they probably, I had a, 
a kid with myotonic dystrophy I trained at my last place, which is basically a muscle wasting disorder. Mm. And he probably had better bench press technique than some of my power lifters at time oh, just wow. because he could, you know, listen to what I was saying. And he, uh, didn't have any previous poor benching technique. It's just like when you're in the military, most of the guys that have never shot a gun before are usually the best marksmen by the time they they get done. Interesting. Yeah. Have you ever heard that? I've never heard that, and I've never shot a gun either, so yeah. maybe I could be a great marksman. That's because when you when you follow their training protocols, uh, same thing. You don't have those bad habits yet. Okay, so let me go through some of my favorites, Bane. Yeah. And these, are, and these are different than I probably would have had even three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think my one of my new favorites is the floor press. Okay. Um, maybe not as specific for a beginner, um, but I do like it for intermediate to advanced lifters mm-hmm. because it does take that leg drive out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, it does cause leg you drive. What is that? <laughs> it does take a little stress off the back if you're a big arch lifter like our uh, one of our lifters here, Dixie Salerno, mm-hmm. who's got a humongous arch, and it's maybe not optimal to arch maximally on every bench press on every workout all the time certainly for a meet it's what you want to do sure but i like that it does have that pause at the bottom um if you put a mat under your shoulders you can still get that good scapular uh setup that you want that scapular depression and retraction Mm -hmm. um so i'm a big fan of the floor press uh and the only caution is if you're a big big dude and you have a big benching belly the floor press is going to be challenging because now you could still do it, but it, you're going to maybe touch your chest before your elbows touch the ground like a normal <laughs> person would. So one of uh, our bigger dudes here, I had to put some mats under his elbows to get him to stop before it touches his belly. Mm, gotcha. Although I've seen Donnie Thompson do floor presses essentially with just a fat pad under his shoulders, and he probably gets a full range of motion. He just yep. has eliminated leg drive. Right. Um, various heights of board presses are probably one of my go-tos for bench assistance. And wh- what board is going to depend on the arm length of the lifter and their weak point. Right. You know, if they've got a weak point a little bit lower, a one board press makes sense. Uh, if they've got a little bit higher, you know, a two, maybe a three board press. Mm. Somebody with my arm length, three board is not much <laughs> range of motion. And you could go higher than that. that that's for basically a USAPL arch at that point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, it's going to kind of depend on the lifter, right. uh, their arm length. So, you know, what range board they're going to use. For shirted benchers, board presses are something that are going to be a staple. Right. Uh, I've become a big fan of the Spoto press, and mm-hmm. that's ironic. I don't even know if Eric Spoto competes anymore. I don't think he does. But it's basically, if you're not familiar, it's a paused be- uh, bench with the bar not touching your chest. Right. And I do like this because, like the pause squat, uh, you do have to stabilize and keep everything tight at that bottom position mm-hmm. versus uh, you know a regular paused bench, which I will have people do. You could use your torso and your body to support the weight versus a spoto press or a pause above the chest. You're really going to have to stay really very tight and keep that upper back in position without letting it move. Right. And just generally, not specifically, but generally, tons of upper back work is, I think... Billions and billions of reps. I think that's probably as important to bench pressing, especially for a newer lifter and especially for a raw lifter. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a shirted lifter, your your triceps are going to become very important as well. But definitely your upper back is going to be very important as a shirted lifter because, you know, you're going to be handling more weight than Mm -hmm. you could raw. Right. And you need the, the shoulders, upper back, you know, in a position where they can handle 
yeah. you know, holding that, you know, maybe 150, 200 pounds above what your raw bench is. Right. You've, you've got to have that foundation set or else you're, 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 you're going to have a bad time. Right. Right. And this would include things like Bane talked about, band pull-aparts, rows, pull-downs, mm-hmm. um, rear delt work, any kind of upper back work. Do a lot of it after you're benching. Yep. Is All my, of it. Is my general recommendation. <laughs> uh, you know, my rule of thumb is normally, you know, in a training program for someone, I want at least a couple row variations, um, sometimes some unilateral, so like a one-arm row or some kind of one-arm yep. row variation. Right. Um, some kind of pull-down or pull-up, uh, some type of rear delt work, mm-hmm. probably duplicated a couple kinds, and then definitely some type of scapular traction work, like the band pull-aparts like prone YTVs, um, incline Ys and Ts. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of my go-tos when it comes to upper back work. Sure. Okay, on to my least favorite lift, maybe Bane's favorite, although maybe not after his workout today. Oh, God. Uh, your your favorite deadlift assistance exercise is Bane. Yeah, so, uh, and, and I would say I, I waffle between if my favorite is the squat or the deadlift. Uh, I would say right now probably the squat is just because that seems to be just really moving forward. Uh, so RDLs, uh, are, are really big. It helps build the hamstrings. It helps Romanian deadlifts. Romanian, yes. Uh, you know, I just, I've always liked doing them. I just, I like the, I like to feel them. I, I can go fairly heavy with them. Uh, I like the, I just like the feel. That's honestly why I, I listed them on here. Uh, and a Romanian deadlift, if you're not familiar, is going to differ slightly from say a, a traditional stiff legged deadlift in that right. you're generally going to have some knee bend in an RDL and it is going to be a hip hinge yes. as opposed to sometimes in straight leg deadlifts, you're going to have some lumbar flexion, some low back rounding, which I personally don't recommend unless you're doing strongman stuff, picking up a, picking up a stone. Right. And I just, I, I really like feeling that stretch in my hamstrings when I'm, when I'm doing RDL. So I, I, again, I've always enjoyed doing those, uh, pull throughs, you know, one of the areas where I know I, I constantly try to work on, uh, as my deadlift has increased is, is the pull through getting the hips through, uh, that can, and, you know, you've seen it with you know some of my lifts and, and with others. That can be the difference between uh, a lift going getting just close enough and getting three whites. You know, by making sure that you've got that good hip drive through the end. Usually done on a cable machine, correct? Usually on the cable machine, yes. There is a variation that uh, Barzine actually showed me uh, a few years ago. Actually, this is at a, a different gym that was out in the western suburbs. That he would put uh, bands on his hips, and he would essentially do stiff-legged uh, deadlifts with the bands, you know, to, to help pull through. Okay. Uh, so that's that's and that was on, on a Smith machine, and so that was uh, when I was talking about pull throughs on a Smith machine. That was uh, what that was for. You'll have to you'll have to show us that sometime. I, I, I will have to do that. We'll do a, a strength and anger video series on a different weird stuff we do, and and honestly, this is and this goes for both styles of uh, of deadlifting. Now, I'm not the one who's going to ever argue if sumo or conventional is the right way to deadlift. I can do both. I, generally speaking, I'm stronger than most people in both, and. I don't care. It's whatever helps you get the most weight off the ground. Generally speaking, that's going to be sumo because of the shorter range of motion. Uh, some people's builds are better designed for uh, for conventional, and that's fine. I actually pulled sumo. I did not pull. I did not deadlift at all until I was in my 30s. Okay. I learned how to pull sumo first. I did not pull conventional until I was already pulling over 600 sumo. Yeah, I too, when I started powerlifting, I just... I tried conventional deadlifting. I didn't have anybody coaching me. Mm-hmm. And the sumo deadlift just kind of fit my squat stance better. Yep. So I just started sumo deadlifting on my own. In high school, we were doing squat bench power clean. Mm-hmm. So when I first started training for my first powerlifting meet, I just naturally picked up sumo. Right. 
and and for you know very similarly my my leverages are built uh, very well for sumo so uh, but I do conventional deadlifts to help with that it has a tremendous carryover both due to the other one and I think most conventional pullers once they start pulling sumo they also see uh, their conventional move up because one they they're just changing up a little bit and it does have a, again like I said a ton of carryover uh, because of the different way that it does work uh, work the hips and work the uh, the abductors adductors I do think that conventional deadlift definitively helps sumo and i think it's probably a good idea for sumo deadlifters to spend at least a portion of their off season doing conventional deadlifts yep i'll do an entire blocks with just conventional definitely i do mostly conventional deadlifts in training and only train sumo close to a meet at this point mm-hmm. because the sumo deadlifts a little bit hard on my hip yes. uh, i don't know that sumo deadlifts are as applicable to conventional deadlifts i'm not going to say they're not going to help but it's more of like you know, a supplementary exercise as opposed to a builder, like a conventional deadlift is for sumo. Okay. Again, I don't know that it doesn't help. I mean, especially if you have weak hips, it could help your conventional deadlift. Mm -hmm. I almost wonder if it would be more of a benefit to your squat than your conventional deadlift, just based on the mechanics of it. I think there's definitely a a solid argument for that. I know one of the reasons why both my squat and my deadlift have been, uh, have been good for a long time is because generally speaking, my stances are almost identical. Uh, there's a, a few, you know, you know, and half inch, quarter inch here and there as far as my feet are placed. That's what but, she said. Yes. And it, Eric's always just ready with those, by the way, in case you didn't know. Um, he's literally just like itching whenever someone's got a. Uh, got I don't think I've said too many to on the podcast yet. No, no. But it's it's if you talk to Eric for more than 20 minutes, you'll get at least one on there. Uh, so because my stances are so similar, there's a ton of carryover both ways uh, with uh, my squat and my deadlift. But uh so yeah, conventional deadlifts huge for for me as a sumo puller, and I do think there is still benefit if you're a conventional puller and uh, pulling sumo. So, yeah. Eric, yeah. What, are, I, what I, are what are yours? Yeah, I agree with conventional deadlifts for sumo. I didn't include that in mine, but I definitely agree with that. If you're a sumo deadlifter, you should spend some time doing some conventional deadlifts. It's going to help you. If nothing else, it'll help you a little bit. Yeah. Um, rack rows are one of my favorite assistance exercises mm-hmm. for the deadlift. Normally, when I start somebody new. That's the first exercise I do on a deadlift slash back day. And is, make sure to use a deadlift bar while you're doing it. Yeah, don't do that. We have, <laughs> we, have a, we have a specific bent bar for heavy rack rows and heavy rack lockouts here at 2XL. Yeah, that but, would be a what's bullshit is people who use the wrong bars for fucking rack rows. Yeah, I, that is pulls. when people come in here and they ask me what are the rules, that's usually, I said, for the most part, the only rule I have is make sure you use this bar with the red tape, mm-hmm. the be- already bent bar, because I've had now three or four bent bars. Mm-hmm. Some of them I may have returned to play it against sports without telling them it was bent and got a little bit of cash for them. Hey. Maybe, but what do they know? The yeah. bars are nicer than the ones they had there anyways. It's true. Uh, but rack rows are where you're starting uh, on the safeties or on the pins. Mm-hmm. You're pausing at the bottom like a deadlift, and then you're pulling it in and pausing at the top typically. And I like that to teach that lat tightness that I think many people lack in mm-hmm. the deadlift. Um, especially new lifters, they can maybe get their hips in the position, but they lack that connection point. You know, again, I talk about the upper back on the bench is kind of like your core in the squat. I think your lats and your core involved, but your lats are your connection point between your body and the bar when you deadlift. Your hands are the water's touching the bar, and the connection point between your hands and your body is going to be your lats. Mm-hmm. So lots of rows, but definitely rack rows, you know, starting from that dead stop and a pause. Uh, I think are very valuable for teaching that that lat tightening needed at the start of a deadlift. Right. Um, probably my favorite assistance exercise in general, at least right now, is chain suspended good mornings. Mm. Um, 
I like starting from the dead stop because it does replicate more a deadlift starting from a dead stop. So that's why we do them from chains or from whatever, spud straps, from a dead stop position. It does take a little bit of the stress out of that eccentric portion of the good morning, um, and that's why I think they are popular. Uh, My only caution, again, is don't turn it into a squat. Our big man here, Trace, Mm -hmm. you know, was doing some heavy good mornings, which I program for him, but, you know, I had to remind him it's not a squat from chains. It's a good morning, and you want it to come from your hips. Um, I like that with the specialty bars, especially, you know, safety squat bar, cambered bar, um, take some of the stress off the shoulders, also puts that center of gravity a little bit more out in front of you, which right. will increase that work of the posterior chain. Right. Um, and my last one is, this is maybe another what is bullshit. They're not deficit deadlifts. They've been called platform deadlifts for like 40 years now. It's okay for them to be wrong. It's just, it's new information, man. It's fine. Right. Yeah. Deficit. I love that. Oh, I'm doing, it sounds so, as, as Donnie Thompson would say, it sounds so poppy. Yeah, I'm doing deficit deficit deadlifts. <laughs> it's like, it's a platform deadlift. You're standing or deadlift standing on mats. Um, Ricky Del Crane had platform deadlifts in his deadlift routine like 30 years ago. Uh, I'm a big fan of plat- what I call platform deadlifts or standing on mats. First of all, fuck platform deadlifts. And fuck <laughs> deficit deadlifts. Fuck standing on mats. Fuck all that shit. <sighs> I, I don't think you should go much above, say, two or three inches on what you're standing on, I think if you go too much above that, you, you're you going to have trouble maintaining your your spine core positioning. Uh, but I do think especially for sumo deadlifters, it's going to help because typically your sticking point is going to be at the bottom on sumo. A lot of times if you can break it off the ground with good form, you'll be able to lock it out. Um, it, conventional deadlifts as well, it's going to be valuable to get that extra range of motion. But I also like block deadlifts or with the plates on blocks, limiting the range of motion. Yeah. My favorite range is kind of in that two to six area. Four That's being, yeah, four kind of being the sweet spot where a lot of people, they will think that because they're pulling from a four inch block, they will be able to do more like a, like a more limited range of motion rack lockout. Wrong. Typically people can do less from a four inch block than they can from the ground because you've taken out a little bit of that momentum mm-hmm. from their legs. You're putting it more on the back and people that struggle with that lat tightness uh, from the start, block deadlifts make a lot of sense. Secondly, I, I would use that for a beginner because by limiting the range of motion, you're making the body positioning needed at the beginning of the lift a little bit easier. So you don't have to get the hips as low in order to get your body in the position to deadlift. There's some strength coaches that would make the argument, you know, if you're doing personal training or you're doing training with athletes, depending on their limb lengths, you know, do you really need to take them to the floor for deadlifts? You can make the argument, no. You know, say a professional basketball player that's, you know, seven feet tall. You know, yeah, probably tr- don't need to do that. Trying to get them down in position to deadlift, you know, a risk-reward basis is maybe not in your favor. So maybe you just have them deadlift from four to six-inch blocks. I know we're kind of getting off into the weeds a little bit, but um, I like block deadlifts to teach, and I like block deadlifts to work various ranges of motion of the deadlift i'm suddenly just picturing anthony davis trying to deadlift and he's just he is like the deadlift specialist at every beat that everyone hates that's in like 11th place <laughs> they walk up and they pull 900 pounds i went to a seminar a number of years ago that had a talk by a former strength coach of the chicago bulls mm-hmm. and 49ers and his name escapes me right now but he had some really and he was a strength coach for the bulls during the 90s yeah he had some really cool pictures of 
Scotty Pippen doing snatches from blocks. That's and, awesome. And Horace Grant doing some really cool lifts. Hogro. Oh, yeah, Michael Jordan did not train with him at all, by the way. He had his own trainer. He, he had Tim Grover, yeah. Yeah, Tim Grover, who's kind of a bro lifter, if you ask me. But nobody asked me. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I I would say the full strength coach was far superior to Tim Grover. For, from a lifting perspective, yes. I think Tim was there more for Jordan's mindset versus the, the sure. personal Sure, and obviously what Jordan did was great. And he also did some bodybuilding type stuff with Jordan to increase yeah. his size, which, uh, to be fair, was very helpful in Jordan's later years because he came more of a post-up player than a slasher. Yep. Um, and now we're really getting off into the weeds. We, we are, but, the, but the, here's the thing. This all then plays back into, you know, overall we're talking about performance. Sure. And all the stuff plays into that. So so it does still apply. But you're right. We are kind of diving down that. Well, I hole. mean, from a powerlifter standpoint, you know, we joke with one of our lifters here who's probably 6'1 and 18 years old. Mm-hmm. We joke that if he went to Westside, Louie would tell him he needed to weigh at least lift at 308 to average out his leverages. Oh, yeah. And I do think there is something to looking at your leverages and figuring out, like, what's a good body weight for me to be based on my leverages for me to be an optimal powerlifter. Now, being an optimal powerlifter, being this, lifting the most weight and health, you know, there's... There, there's a happy medium somewhere in there. Right. The, the Venn diagram has a spot. <laughs> right. You know, in Westside versus the World, Louis tells A.J. Roberts, if you just were able to get 20 pounds heavier, we could get you the all-time world record total, which is probably true. Yeah. But, but A.J. Roberts was talking about how he couldn't sleep and he wasn't breathing and he had sleep apnea. And he's yeah. like, I can't push my body weight any heavier and not broke. Yeah. So, but I do think... If you're a, a skinny, long person and you want to be good in powerlifting, there's probably some utility to doing some bodybuilding type stuff, you know, and increasing your just your size in general to be in a better leveraged position to be a strong powerlifter. Skinny guys put on weight. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, we talked about Joe DeFranco. He used to have a West Side for Skinny Bastards version nice. of West Side that was built for, you know, he... He was in New Jersey, and he trained a lot of skinny football players that, yeah. you know, needed to get both big, strong, and fast. Right. And that was uh, – you can Google that. And it's an interesting protocol that, that DeFranco used it in those sounds days. sounds interesting. Any other final thoughts on assistance exercises, Bane? We Do were, them. Do that, them. Yeah. Here's – and I, I say that with a lot of emphasis because I know a lot of folks, including the person speaking right now, that would go in – do their main movements and then half-ass the assistance work, and you will plateau very, very fast. Take this work as seriously as you do the main lifts because this is what, once you get past that initial growth of strength and size, you know, the, the beginner gains, right, this is what keeps progress going is, is these types of things. The stuff we've talked about, we've left out a ton of them, but, again, these are the kind of things that help you get stronger long-term, not just for six months. Yeah, and I usually tell people that, at a certain point, you know, you've got exercises that are gainers and testers. Yep. Uh, Louie talked about this as well. So at a certain point, your big three are more testers than gainers, mm-hmm. and you're not necessarily getting stronger by doing the big three directly. Right. At a certain point, it's going to be your, your variations and your assistance exercises that are actually getting you stronger. Right. Um, I know that the high-frequency, high-volume crew would disagree with me, but I've been lifting for 20 years, and some of them have only been lifting for three or four Come call me again in 10 years and let me know if you're still benching three times a week and your shoulders are exactly. in shape. And maybe you are, and more power to you if you are. Um, there's some that do that. I would say they're mi- the minority. Um, and I do think, as you said, Bane, assistance exercises 
programmed properly, working the entire body, keeping balance, um, and keeping your joints in good shape is what's going to allow you to maintain powerlifting for a long time. Yep. It is um, doable. Right. I, I mean, Ernie Franz did it for, gosh, 50 years probably, and yeah. is 80 years old. And granted, no 80-year-old is in the greatest shape in the world, but he's still uh, still going around at 80 years old and yeah. competed at the highest level of powerlifting, actually bodybuilding as well for yeah. many, many years. Yeah. That's a whole story unto itself. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you, Bane. Do your assistance exercises. Emphasize assistance exercises in the off-season. Emphasize your big three when you're getting close to a meet. It, it's okay to go a little lighter on your assistance stuff when you're five weeks out of a meet. I get it. You're tired after doing yeah. heavy singles, heavy doubles, heavy triples. Yeah. But in the off-season, um, complete your entire workout that's programmed. And maybe you don't have a program. Find a program. Go online. You can go yeah. back to our previous episode and look up one of those. Yep. That would be my other suggestion would be, you know, pick a program and stick to it. And you have to stick to assistance exercises for more than a couple weeks to get any benefit. You can't change it every week, in my opinion. I think you need to, you need to spend some time, you know, working at the exercise to see if it actually helps. Yeah, I agree. Agree 100%. So we did hear this week, Bane, about the unfortunate passing of Michael Soong. Yes. And if you don't know who he is... He was the all-time world record holder statistician for many, many, for as long as I've been around powerlifting. Yeah. So, Soong's list is the only thing I've ever heard about that mattered. Sure. And there's openpowerlifting.com now. There previously was Herb Glossbrenner in Powerlifting USA did a lot of these lists as well. But he did Herb, in conjunction with Michael, didn't he? Yeah, Michael and Herb worked together. Um, and in fact, at a certain point, it was you know Michael Soong's list being published in powerlifting USA and his lists were on powerlifting watch powerlifting watch had their own rankings as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but Michael soon, it's an interesting story. I actually was working on doing an interview with him a couple of years ago. And it, mm-hmm. I guess it doesn't surprise me now that I've heard that he's passed because at one point, you know, he and I would correspond every once in a while via email since I ran so many meets, he mm-hmm. would, you know, ask me for clarifications on results and ask me for emails for lifters. If, you know, I felt comfortable giving them because he would normally email lifters if they had a record-breaking lift to yeah. let them know. Hey, you're on the list now. Right. And he wanted contact. He just wanted to let them know. And it, it's an interesting story we'll go into next week. But it, this is not a guy who did it for money. This is not a guy. I don't even think he was necessarily a power lifter. He was a guy who enjoyed strength sports as a fan and wanted the ability to find out who was the best all time. Which is remarkable. The it amount truly, truly and the amount of work that he did as a statistician for powerlifting, you know, you couldn't. I mean, you'd have to pay someone a salary, you know, mm-hmm. to do all the work that he did. And we were talking about this before we started recording. I'm hoping that I can try to make contact with somebody from his family yeah. and see if some of those files can be transferred over to me or transferred over to OpenPowerlifting.com. I'm certainly not going to continue the work he did, but I would hope that maybe open. It, it needs to be. I hope that somebody can, you know, catalog the work he did because I'm sure he's got files and files of Excel that he did tracking all this because he did top 50 American and world lists for every weight class raw and equipped. He did, you know, the the all-time world records for all the weight class. He did like, you know, the all-time, you know, 600-pound raw bench press list. He did mm-hmm. the all-time, like, I don't know, I think eight, 900, 1,000-pound bench press list for equipped. Yeah, he, he, he had so many different, like, ways that data was sliced. And 
I, I do hope that there is you know somehow access to this information so that it can it can live on uh, because that's a that is an incredible legacy that he put together and, and it needs to be out there. There isn't one interview out there which I found. Um, I wanted to go a little bit more in depth with them, but there is an interview out there that I will I will download and read through. And we will go through some highlights mm-hmm. next week. Um, but it is it's an interesting story and it brings up an interesting discussion that's been around in powerlifting for a while. Is there's always been a lot of hate for these all-time world record lists because they include all federations and all mm-hmm. all not in true drug tra- testing. They right. include 24-hour weigh-ins and not 24-hour weigh-ins. And so it's often been a kind of a sticking point for people. And what I don't think a lot of people realize was that it was just a guy yeah. doing these lists. And that's not to denigrate what he did, but it it wasn't like some kind of, you know, overarching, you know, powerlifting like new world order that is right it was just all this it was just a guy that wanted a, a list of the best lifts out there yeah and people did find value in that i mean michael soon could have published a yearly list and yeah. got people to pay for it and I, he might have gotten paid a little bit through some of his lists being published on powerlifting watch i don't know he at one point he offered me his list just publish them on my website and i just at that time i didn't have the the time and the capacity to do it all. And yeah. I think he eventually then went to powerlifting watch, right. but he, he just wanted the information out there. I can guarantee you he didn't do it for money. But we're, we're going to talk more about him next week. Cause there, yeah. there is, there's a huge story with this, like just what he did, how he did it. And, and we're going to obviously do some research on that and hopefully get a few more people to help with that. Cause I know some folks had contact with him and, and the biggest thing, you know, if you're listening to this and you somehow have contact with his family, that information, you know, needs to be available to the powerlifting public because it's it's. I think he such would. Inc- I think so he would incredible. want it available. I, I agree, hundred. That's why I did it. Right. So, okay. with that, this is Eric Stone signing out. Strength and anger. <laughs>